Start Battery Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Get up to a $25 gift card after rebate with the purchase of select Superstart batteries. Our professional parts people will test your old battery for free and recommend the right battery for your vehicle. For power, performance, and reliability, choose Superstart batteries only at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. This time on the Hill, we are joined by our guest, Virginia Congressman Don Beyer, represents the 8th Congressional District in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and we're pleased to welcome you here to On the Hill Podcast. Thank you, Tom, very much. Uh, it's a pleasure for us to have you here. We always love having members of Congress come in because, you know, the show is on the Hill. So we like to have people. Who I, actually, I feel like I'm in the room where it happens. Yeah, we like to have people who are actually work on the Hill. Um, your backstory is probably one of the more fascinating of uh, the elected representatives who serve our district. You were a businessman. You, you, you did business. You sold cars. You were successful as that. Tell people about how, how, how did you get started? Well, I grew up here. You know, I, I literally in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad met at Western High School, which is now the Duke Ellington School for the Arts, yeah. back in the 40s. My grandparents, three of the four, worked for Franklin Roosevelt. They were new dealers. So I just, you know, I've had a terminal case of Potomac fever. <laughs> and uh, after I went to, you know, Gonzaga, my sisters went to visitation. And when I came back after college, I was going to go to med school but at Georgetown. But my dad had just purchased this little Volvo dealership, and he needed a parts driver. He said it was the only skill I had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I fell in love with the business. And so now we're 45 and a half years old. It's my brother, my sister. I had another sister worked there for years. And I discovered about age 30 that you could take the business background, wonderful platform, you know, lots of, lots of license plates with our yeah, name right, on it. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and it became a, a great platform to for political action i don't know if anybody's asked you about this because it's like usually they either talk to you about politics or they talk to you about you know other things but are there any like similarities between how you (laughs) sell a car and how you sell a piece of legislation well are there skills that you can put to use in in the political world one of my favorite books is by another washingtonian daniel pink who wrote to sell is human yeah uh but yes absolutely because you're yeah, I was born shy, but in both of these uh, career or avocations, you have to walk up to people you don't know, be friendly, yeah. be open, learn about their lives, and and try to fill their needs. You were shy? You oh, don't I seem shy. shy. I, I, it's a pr- long process of overcoming it. Yeah? Yeah. When you sit down and you talk to people about, you know, the world, politics, do more people know you from – from the car business, oh, much, they know ma- you from- ma- ma- many more so from the car business. Yeah, and, well, it's uh, name recognition. Yeah, 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 and it's you know it's a couple million dollars of advertising for uh, per year yeah. for forty years. Uh, and, uh, and I also found that you know after forty five years, um, we've sold a lot of cars to a lot of different families. And they can say, <laughs> yeah, I remember I bought one from you thirty years ago. Well, say, please buy another one. <laughs> uh, so, talk to me about that leap from businessman to politician. Because here you are, you had a successful, you have a successful business running. Things are good. Uh, I think a lot of people would just kind of say, you know, I'm I'm good where I am. 
Yeah. What was the longing for you to kind of maybe do more and and maybe reach out into some other areas that weren't quite as comfortable? Well, well, both of them are fulfilling. Yeah. And I've always said that the proudest part of the business for me has been watching people come to work for us. Mm -hmm. You know, right new immigrants from whatever nation or right out of high school or right out of the military and even a number of cases right out of prison and make an entire career, build homes by families. But also I, early on, I, I learned this wisdom that ultimately it's the political leaders who decide mm -hmm. who goes to war and who doesn't, who has a house and who doesn't, the kind of wages you make. That If you want to make the biggest structural difference on the world in which we live, politics is maybe the best way to do it. So the, the genesis of this is there you are, you're selling cars, and somebody comes to you and says, uh, uh, you know, I want a donation or I need you to run finances for me. Or like, it, How does it start? How, yeah, somebody came and How said, do they draw you into this yeah, world? So he, some guy came and said, I want a donation. Yeah. And uh, he said, maybe you'd like to volunteer. So I showed up one afternoon to volunteer to stuff envelopes. Mm -hmm. And I left half hour later as his finance chairman. <laughs> <laughs> that quick, huh? as a yeah. New York rise. Yeah, it was, it was, it was Envelope stuffer to, uh, yeah, the, the, to the finance The same chairman. half hour, yeah. You're political I, Horatio Alger. Well, no. That's, that's a, a quick I, rise. I kidded the campaign manager. said, so you must not get many business leaders so what's volunteering the on these campaigns. <laughs> so you do the finance chairman thing, and then you're spending time raising money for somebody else. When does the light go on in your head say, I think I might want to do this myself? Well, I sort of always thought I wanted to do it, but it was just pipe dream, daydream. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until like six or seven years I've been volunteering on campaigns. But you meet a lot of really interesting people. That's one of the things I love about politics is across the political spectrum, um, it attracts people who want to make a difference. No couch potatoes in politics. Mm -hmm. And so one of the many terrific people I met said, hey, you should run for lieutenant governor. And I was like, I can't run. I've never run for anything. And he said, no, you should try it. So I I jumped in figuring that would be a short-lived thing and surprised everybody, including myself, when I won. Well, so you become lieutenant governor. Um, now, is this with George Allen? Yeah, this is with Doug Wilder. Doug Wilder. So Doug yeah, Wilder so is your first. Yeah. Doug Wilder's a Democrat. You're a Democrat. Great. However, you run again, which is a little bit unusual because a lot of lieutenant governors yeah. don't yeah. serve two terms in Virginia. You run again. You're lieutenant governor again as Democrat. Your governor is George Allen, Republican. What was what was that like? It was uh, in some ways it was more fun, more fun because when when Governor Wilder was governor, I had to be and I was the the loyal number two. Um, mm -hmm. With George Allen, I didn't have to be the loyal number two. <laughs> I could be the the voice of the loyal opposition. Right, and we had a good relationship. Uh, uh, governor Allen and I got along great. He, he was kind to me. We never did anything really substantial together. Mm -hmm. um, I was often the counterpoint to his ideas. Um, but, uh, and it was funny, I spent much of that time running for governor in 1997, mm -hmm. which didn't quite work. What did you learn, what did you get from that job, though, being lieutenant governor? Because a lot of people, like, you know, they'll look at the vice presidency, or they'll look at governor, lieutenant governor, and they'll say, oh, well, they're just waiting around for whoever is holding the yeah. top job to kind of you know, you know, take a hike. It fits from the first day. I thought, you know, this could be the only political office I ever have. And there's no guarantee that I'm going to re win re-election or that I'm going to win this governor's race. So we went at it really hard with big legislative agendas every single year on Virginians with disabilities, on uh, economic recovery, on school construction. Um, I had a two-and-a-half-year commission on child sexual assault. 
which is emotionally very difficult, but led to a lot of really important changes in our law. And so it, there's, there's a body of real constructive change in Virginia that I can say that was what I did as lieutenant governor. When you look at the political makeup of the state uh, you know, right now, which has gone decidedly blue in Virginia, you know, uh, some people would say purple, you know, the statewide races generally have gone to Democrats the last couple of years. Yeah, t- ten in a row, I yeah. think, yeah. Um, is there any party that looks at it sometimes and goes, Ugh, if that just could have been 10 years earlier, <laughs> I would have, I would have been able to uh, rewrite history. No, no, they say timing is everything. Plus, yeah. I love my life. Yeah. I, I, you know, I love the campaign. There was so much else that I got out of it. I, I, I have this wonderful sense of Virginia, which very few people get. I have friends in 134 cities and counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a tremendous education. So, and you got to see the entire Commonwealth too. Yeah, you got to yeah. travel the length and breadth of Virginia, and um, the people are wonderful everywhere. It's a big state. People don't talk about Virginia being physically, physically. Mm-hmm. I know I've driven it. It's an enormous uh, place. I, I think from uh, Accomack to Lee County yeah. is something like thirteen hours. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. <laughs> it's you'll, when, you'll, when, when you're down to Lee County, you're west of Detroit. Yeah, you're, that's, that's a lot of miles. So the governor's race doesn't quite work out. Uh, and so you go back to business, go yeah, back to your yeah, job. Which, which is, the, the, I, I've never wanted to be one of those political leaders that was grasping to hang on to office. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you in a representative government, you want to be able to vote your conscience, do what you think is right. And if if, if the voters don't like it, they can throw you out. And the gift for me is I could go back to the car business that I loved. One of the reasons I was really looking forward to having you sit down here on the On the Hill podcast was because – I wanted to talk about this idea of business business people as politicians. You know, there always there was this great question of what would happen, you know, and it came up when Ross Perot ran for president. What would happen if we just elected a non-politician as president, a businessman who can get things done, somebody who, you know, can kind of point at their underlings and, and order them to do things and things get done? What was the biggest uh, adjustment for you? Uh, now, you know, granted, you were a lieutenant governor in your first elective job. Now you're a congressman. But but even in the lieutenant governor's job, what was the biggest adjustment from your mindset as a businessman, how things get done, and then your mindset, you know, as an elected official about how things yeah. get done? Well, Tom, I had seen this experience and read about it with other business people, and it was certainly mine right away. They're not the same. And it's a pretty uh, not reliable message to say, look what a good job I've done running my business. I can be the same kind of governor or president, but congressman, uh, whatever. Business people say that all the time. I know, but it's, it's just not true. Um, <laughs> there are real advantages to it. Um, I think I, uh, like on the Ways and Means Committee now, I think I have a different and perhaps deeper understanding of the way tax policy affects businesses, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, I, having – sign paychecks every Friday for 40 years. I, I know what that feels like, you know, what it takes to do job creation. But they're not the same. It, it, in the dealership, in theory, if I say, hey, uh, Bill, um, go pull that car down, he'll go pull yeah. that car down. That doesn't happen <laughs> in, in our world. So every, you can't just every, say pass that bill and they pass that bill. No, everything yeah. is negotiation and relationship and working together. And, and when you look at, you know, I'll, I'll get right to the elephant in the room here. When you look at how Donald Trump has operated as president, and we'll, we'll, we'll leave the big issues, you know, on the shelf for a moment. Is that one of the issues you see with him 
as far as how he oh. has handled this presidency is that the business mentality of I say it, do it doesn't happen in, in politics. Exactly. I think you saw it in the Mueller report, how many, many instances there were when he said, go do it. And his people didn't because they knew it was crazy or wrong or we we're going to get him in trouble. Um, yeah, that's a fundamental misunderstanding. There, I have What's enormous gonna, criticisms of yeah. him as president, but that is among them is that you it needs to be collaborative. You have to work together with people to accomplish something that you, you both share. I think I read something where one of the columnists wrote something that you know Donald Trump might have been saved by the people who nodded their heads and oh. walked out of the room and yeah. didn't do anything he told them to do. Yeah, but many of them, from, yeah. from Reince Priebus to Gary Cohn to now Don McGahn, as general counsel, apparently mm-hmm. saved him again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, kept him from doing illegal things or, or wrong things. Are, are there things in the political world that are better than how a business operates? Are there things you can do... As an elected official that uh, as a business person, um, you get kind of tied up in how things are done as a regular means. You know, this is how we do a deal. Yeah. Um, can you can you flip that, uh, what we just talked about, about how, you know, sometimes businessmen look at politics as being, you know, easier than it maybe is. Can elected officials do things maybe that, you know, could, elect, could business people learn things from elected officials? Yes, it never seems to yeah. flow in that direction. No, but but, I, and I think again, this seems to be fairly seamless for me. Mm-hmm. You know, we learned much of our values in the business from my father, mm-hmm. who was you know larger than life. But his very first rule was integrity. You know, always just do the right thing first. Don't worry about what it costs, mm-hmm. and and things will work out. And and that should be true in, in both spheres. But one of the things that's different is when I was selling cars, I would have to remind myself that. You know, being an honest car dealer and taking good care of the customers and good mm-hmm. care of the people who work for you was fulfilling and made a difference. And that's true. But when I come to the Capitol Hill and say we can make a big difference in gun violence prevention, I'm leading an initiative with a Republican yeah. from New York, John Katko, on suicide prevention. 47,000 Americans lost their lives to suicide last year. If we can change that by 1,000, that's 1,000 families that aren't devastated for a generation. That's a much bigger difference than fixing your car right the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, well, or selling it. Yeah. Yeah. It, saves, it's, it's just, literally saves people's yeah, lives. The, the difference in terms of the impact mm-hmm. on, on human lives, human families, is just so much greater mm-hmm. in political life. And not just at the federal level. That's even mm-hmm. true at, you know, in the city of Alexandria or in Richmond. That's an important point. Um, all right, so as we continue on This Is Your Life, governor's race doesn't work out. You go back to selling cars. And then years later, is it? 13, 15 years later? Eight or nine. Yeah, well, Congressman Jim Moran decides he's not going to run for office anymore. But, but before that, yeah. um, m- my wife and I, Megan, fell in love with this young Illinois senator, Barack Obama, Yeah. in the first week of February 2007. Yeah. And so we spent almost two years of our lives as volunteers working on the Obama campaign. Did you travel? Uh, yeah, we, we took the kids to Ottumwa, Iowa, home of Radar O'Reilly, the day after Christmas 2007. Spent 17 days there uh, working on the caucuses. And uh, and then and Senator Obama won. Uh, I was on the transition team. And then I, I'd never aspired to be an ambassador. Mm-hmm. It just never really crossed my mind. I thought maybe I'd be a deputy assistant undersecretary or something. Obama makes you an ambassador. Yeah, to, to Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Which I, back to the governor's race, mm-hmm. I, I used to kid over there. 
as we're sitting in our living room overlooking the Alps, that I spent nine and a half years running for governor of Virginia. And the actual job I wanted was ambassador to Switzerland. <laughs> you didn't so, know. Yeah, I didn't even know. Well, it's hard to run for ambassador. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's and it's and a it, job you have to be given. You can't really quite run really, for that. And really, given is the absolute word. Given had is, you ever kind of thought of yourself as a diplomat before that point? I well, mean, I, was, I was born overseas. Yeah. My dad was stationed in Trieste, the free territory of Trieste. You were and, born there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so Italian was the first language. And uh, yeah, and I loved languages, and mm-hmm. uh, so, and you know, I, I've always been a subscriber to foreign policy and foreign affairs, and so I, I loved the idea, and I've always sold foreign cars. Um, so, but it was wonderful. Experience Living in Switzerland isn't bad either. Yeah, and was, you were able to maintain our peace with Switzerland. Yeah, that, we, over that we, you know, they're, they're one of the few countries we've never either fought or fought side by side with in a war because their their last battle was June. Fifteen, fifteen. So, well, geog- and, uh, uh, their, their geological makeup uh, has insulated them yeah. for uh, thousands of years, and yeah. uh, that that served and the, them well. And their unique personality. So then, yeah. when I came back, was back to the car dealership. Mm-hmm. It's always been my wonderful uh, home. And then Jim Moran decided to retire. So you can go back to the car dealership after you've been e- the ambassador. E- 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 even, even now, <laughs> if I lose in 2020, I hope my brother and my sister will allow me back. Yes. So um, Jim Moran decides not to not to uh, run again in his race and uh is the spark lit again at that point where you decide yeah I, i'd always looked at jim's seat and said boy if you could have that seat mm-hmm. you're you're it's a relatively blue district it's 15 minutes to the capital um it's you know we're the second most educated we're one of the wealthiest districts we're the most politically sophisticated district in the country certainly um, what a wonderful place to serve from and a great place to where you don't have to worry the whole time about getting reelected or raising money. Mm-hmm. You can actually try to lead uh, led, led many, many legislative issues. I also didn't think it would be that plausible to actually get the nomination in a place where there's so many good elected officials at mm-hmm. every level. But I, I got lucky and well, here I am. You've won uh, and, and been reelected uh, uh, handedly uh, in, in, in your elections, and um, you've become – uh, one of the more prominent voices for the Democratic parties. You're often called on to you know, appear on national Sunday talk shows and CNN and major networks and Fox News and, and, and things like that. Um, when you, we look at your district, uh, Northern Virginia, it is probably on the East Coast, one of the hottest areas economically yeah. for this country. And it is one of the reasons that Amazon decided to place... Uh, HQ2 into uh, Crystal City. It's going to affect your district, um, both by housing prices, transportation needs, also the educational uh, system that is going to be have to be in place for high tech uh, jobs. Um, we look at what happened in New York, where the congresswoman from New York, you know, takes great pride in having. Uh, nix the deal up there. You've taken a very different approach to all of this. Why is that? I don't understand New York. I think they just made some terrible mistakes. I'm really excited about it yeah. um, for three big reasons. You know, well, and for ten. But the big number one is that Virginia Tech, part of the deal, they're going to build a one million square foot campus with a billion dollar investment, right there across from Potomac Yards, just south of, of HQ two. And it's going to be the equivalent to MIT or Caltech or Carnegie Mellon. You know, we, it will be a magnet far beyond Amazon in terms of our math and computer science folks. 
Uh, and then we get, uh, I think, $24 billion in new transportation improvements, which is going to help Metro and everything else. Mm-hmm. And then um, it initiated a, an affordable housing initiative with Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, uh, which is going to build tens of thousands of affordable housing units. So this it's win, win, win. And then we're going to get 25,000 very well-paid people who are going to end up uh, as major contributors to all of our nonprofits and board members and so the, the – but Arlington, Alexandria, Falls Church, Fairfax, these are incredibly strong communities in terms of taking care of those in need. What government can do, we have things like Good Shepherd Housing or, or um, bridges that fill in, and those will only get stronger because of the Amazon execs. And that speaks to the people who have concerns about this because you know, there's a lot of concern, as you know, of uh, you, you know, if there will be enough affordable housing if uh, housing prices will start to rise in this area. You know, in some ways for the economy, it's a good problem to have. But if it puts homes out of reach of the people who are already here, uh, that's going to create a problem um, for that, our housing markets. Yeah, that, that, and that's something that that is good to worry about. And I yeah. think all of our local government officials and the state, too, are, are really worried about. It. So we're they're working hard at it. I'm co- co-lead in House Ways and Means mm-hmm. with a wonderful woman from Seattle on increasing the affordable housing tax credit by 50%. That will make a nationally that will make a big difference. But but our our governor and our local officials if if you drive through Arlington Alexander Falls Church you see buildings going up everywhere and the mostly multifamily housing springing up like weeds. And and, yeah. and and many of those will be ever more affordable. I want to talk to you about uh healthcare because we have been locked now, you know, it's hard to believe but for a decade since the Obama administration started pushing uh, and eventually got through the Affordable Care Act. Um, the president, current president says that he wants great health care, that he wants to do away with Obamacare, and he wants to replace it with something wonderful and better. Wonderful and better isn't a plan, but I think both sides can agree that there are some things that need to be fixed uh, in our in our current system, because even after a decade since the affordable health care, um, we're in a different environment. People have now had this diet of hearings over prescription drug costs, and they don't have to turn on C-SPAN to find this out. A lot of people only have to go yeah, to their medicine right, cabinet, and they right. know how much they're paying. Is is this is this the the big issue right now? Because it seems to me, once you start getting into something that's in somebody's medicine cabinet. Um, I don't know how much personal, how much home hitting you can get than that, prescription drug yeah. costs. So, so I think the existential issue that affects us all is climate change. Mm-hmm. But it never, you, for most people, it doesn't rise to number five or even number six in terms of their immediate priorities, which is why political until, leaders until have to Until a hurricane destroys their house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Every, every day in the paper there's another mm-hmm. story about it. But when you actually talk about what's happening in my life today, mm-hmm. it's going to be prescription drug prices and health care prices. Because one is immediate and one is a you know, future threat, Yeah, yeah. even but though we're th- seeing the effects of it now. Exactly right. So, And that's why that was the number one message that we had in the elections. That's why it's our number one goal right now. So we, we've got to fix – and there are, I could – give you 27 different plans, everything from ne- letting Medicare negotiate on drug prices to banning the tax deductibility of television advertising. Mm-hmm. Here's a great throwaway factoid. Drug companies spend more on TV advertising than they do on drug research. Well, you know, you and can see that when you, you know, turn on some of these programs. Yeah. All, what, but, but what is the heart of the markup, though, that you've learned? It costs some of these manuf- – let's just say 
I'm not going to call out a specific drug. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. let's create a drug. Drug X. Drug X costs me $20 to make because I'm a pharmaceutical company, but yet I'm charging you $400. Or 8000 Or 8000 or 8, yeah. maybe. It, it's, it's what the market will bear. The market, they've made it so complicated. And that's legal. With the different insurance companies, Medicare is not allowed to negotiate. Yeah. You have these pharmacy benefit managers. You have coupons all over the place. Uh, we just passed four bipartisan transparency bills on drug pricing a week or two ago. So we've got to greatly simplify it. And we have to take um, you know, the, the, the avaricious um, profit-seeking mm-hmm. uh, out of it because these are, these are our health and our life. So uh, for insulin being probably the best example. Is it frustrating you at all, though, that, that you know, here is this issue seems to be gift wrap um, for people's attention. But we don't talk about it in, in a way that is productive. We talk about Obamacare, good, bad. And then the president will talk about, you know, wonderful or fantastic. Yeah, I know. It, it is. And the problem with drug pricing is they've made it so complicated. It's really hard to talk about in yeah. a simple way, um, which is why we have to drill down and make it simple and find good ways to articulate it and change it. When you took up the issue of uh, gun violence, um, it struck some of us that, you know, we're sitting here on the 20th anniversary of Columbine. I think a couple of days ago it was the 11th anniversary or 12th anniversary of Virginia Tech. Sound, yeah, sounds yeah. right. It was April. Yeah. Um, which I was down there that day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could spend countless minutes recalling all of the other mass shootings that we've had in this country since then. You know, at one time Virginia Tech was some high yeah, watermark yeah. and that was soon eclipsed by Pulse nightclub and then Las Vegas and then so on and so on. Parkland. Uh, Parkland. Yeah, we yeah. we seem tennis. to be in this vicious cycle yeah. of quiet on these kinds of events, and almost certainly it will happen again at some point. Although both sides seem to say they want to stop mass shootings, there does seem to be this uh, rigor mortis that has set in, to use a horrible term to describe yeah. it, as to getting something done. What what What... Do Democrats and Republicans agree on when it comes to guns? Is there anything that they agree on? Yeah, well, I, I think we had a unanimity on bump stocks. Not unanimity, but a, a bipartisan agreement that bump stocks need to be banned. I, mm-hmm. I really am hopeful that uh, gun violence restraining orders, which is uh, the law in some states already. Just in, for example, um, if somebody in the family is in a psychotic state, may have schizophrenia, maybe bipolar, mm-hmm. or somebody in the family is in a deep depression, um, where law enforcement or the family can go to the court and say, this person needs to be on the background checklist. In some states, we need to take away that person's guns. Yeah, in the states, and they're calling this red flag legislation. Red flag, exactly. Some, yeah. some of the legislatures, have, like so Maryland has been yeah, moving and, on And this. Maryland, I think, yeah. had 300 petitions in the first three months. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Cho, Tom, 11 years ago, and you're being down to Blacksburg when that happened. Cho was had been hospitalized. He was a schizophrenic. He'd been banned from classes. He was able to buy those guns legally. Um, at at a gun shop and kill those thirty some kids. That wouldn't have happened if Virginia had had a red flag law. One of the things we learned from the Cho case, though, was that when Fairfax County officials were dealing with him, they had a very detailed record on what was going on with him at the time. That never traveled with yeah. him to Virginia Tech. HIPAA laws, health privacy laws, things. You know, when you when you talk about the gun debate, health privacy never really ever gets mentioned 
Although when you're talking about dangerous individuals, it seems to be one of the most important issues. But it's a touchy subject because anytime you start talking about maybe loosening up the privacy, health privacy laws, people say, whoa, 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 whoa. don't do that. I, I have a right to my privacy. So is there a way for that kind of information that, say, Fairfax County had about show to in some way funnel into the system as to whether or not yeah. somebody can purchase it. Uh, that, that is the law now. I think yeah. we've come a long way since, Joe. Um, because if you are involuntarily hospitalized for any kind of psychiatric issue, you're supposed to go right onto that background checklist. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you've been convicted of you know, stalking or domestic violence or some of these other instances, it's really important. One of the other things that we've done recently in the House, not in the Senate yet, but I hope we will, is close the so-called Charleston loophole. Uh, Dylan Roof, who killed the people in the church, Emmanuel, a couple years ago, went to buy a gun. He was on the background checklist, but it didn't show up for some reason. It, it gave it an inconclusive. And after 48 hours, he was allowed to buy the weapons that he killed those people with legally, legally bought, bought the weapons. Uh, and now we extended it to, I think, 28 days, mm-hmm. which is a much better thing. So federal uh, blanket legislation is really the answer to this, though, isn't it? Because yeah, it is. you can have one state like Maryland do something and then another state like Virginia do something else. And if the laws are not consistent, well, the person is not going to say, may, Mother, may I, before I can bring a gun across the state line. Yeah, two, so. two great examples. Those states that have universal background checks have significantly lower suicide rates and homicide rates. Mm-hmm. But also, you can't do it one state at a time. And Chicago and Washington are both great examples. Mm-hmm. Those cities have really tough gun laws, but it's in, you can easily go to Richmond mm-hmm. and buy 36 guns at a, at a Henrico gun deal, bring it back and sell them in D.C., and then the, the deaths still are there. Uh, I want to end on um, something we discussed on the television program this morning, which was the current state of politics in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You had called for resignations of uh, some of the top leaders of the state. Uh, obviously, you know, people will remember uh, Governor Ralph Northam remains in office having uh, questions surrounding a racist photo that appeared on his yearbook page, which the governor has denied was him or an individual dressed in a KKK outfit. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax has faced allegations of sexual assault uh, by not one but two women. And the current uh, Attorney General Mark Herring, who had already announced that he was running for governor in the next election, uh, came forward on his own uh, to say that he had once worn blackface in college. Um, Terry McAuliffe announced that he was not going to run for president last week and said he was needed at in his state. And if you follow Virginia, you know why. Uh, you know, if you're running for something, it's kind of hard to put your arm around Ralph Northam right now without protesters being out front. When you look at the state, and you're, you're a congressman now, you're not in state government anymore, um, but is is there a way forward? out of this because it seems like we're stuck where we were in February with everybody remaining in office, but yet none of this going away. There's no resolution here. No, it is awkward. Yeah, I'd called for the resignation of both the governor and lieutenant governor, not because I wanted to punish them. Who am I to say they should be punished? Um, but rather because it was very difficult to see how they could lead effectively with these clouds hanging over them. And unfortunately, I think that's exactly what's happened. No one's paying attention to me. But they are looking and saying, you know, they, they can't go to any events. They're booed. They're protested. Um, they're just in a very difficult position. And I'm thrilled that Governor McAuliffe is coming back to throw his significant weight into Virginia politics and make a difference there. 
uh, and with both uh, the governor and lieutenant governor, if they stay, I hope that there is a progressive healing, Mm -hmm. that they become ever more effective in the jobs that they have. And and I don't know how that will happen, but, but, you know, time perhaps heals all wounds. It it does take away the ability, though, for the party, at least in Virginia, to talk about two of the two very, very important issues, which is, you know, race relations in our country, the state of race relations in this country, and, you know, the Me Too movement as well, too. Yeah. Um, so if this continues, do you, are you concerned at all that stagnation could set in? That, that Yeah, although I, I, my preference would be to, tr- to try to turn it into an opportunity, mm. you know, that be- because the governor's difficulties are around blackface and coon man that name on his yearbook page yeah, yeah. he has an opportunity and i think he's trying to take it to lead a conversation on racial healing on the way uh the progress we've made and the progress that has yet to be made we thank you so much congressman don byer Vitz, thank you democrat out of virginia the eighth district he was kind enough to join us here on the hob on the hill podcast this weekend. That'll do it for this time. We thank you for joining us. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us this time. We'll see you next time on The Hill. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyendo los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.